showtime. Welcome everyone to the Rosie and Bill show. Our guest this week is incredibly versatile, incredibly accomplished, and reading through his long list of achievements could lead to carpal tunnel syndrome scrolling down his Wikipedia page. And what's even more impressive than all of the awards and accolades he's received over the last 60 years is the fact that he remains through it all one of the most humble and kindest people you will ever meet. Please welcome to the Rosie and Bill Show, a member of the 2022 class of the East Coast Music Hall of Fame, Mr. Tony Orlando. Tony, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for that introduction. It was very sweet of you. Thank you. Well, Tony, one of the things that really struck Bill and I when we first met you three years ago at the original Maiden Gala of the East Coast Music Hall of Fame was how nice and humble you were. You were so kind to us and so respectful. And we just looked at each other. It was like, oh my gosh, you know, sometimes you meet people and you you don't, your image changes or your opinion changes of them because maybe they're not as nice as they come across and you are everything and more. So thank you for that. Thank you, Roland. You know, I believe, I, I really believe, you know, fame isn't really fame at all. It only appears that way from a distance. There really is no such thing as fame. I mean, a fa the most famous thing I can think of is when I first looked up at a marquee and my name was on it. But when you walk away from the marquee, you're still Jenny's dad, Franny's husband, uh, Ruthie's son. There really is, if it, when people t take fame much too serious. I would much prefer uh, over fame, friendship, kindness, respect. And if I can live my life doing that, then I'm happy with myself. But I see that so many people get hooked up and so entangled in their what they this thing called fame. That's really a mirage. It's all in the head. It doesn't even exist. That's what a is great fame? Point. You can't touch it. You can't hold it. You can't call it. What is it? You can't even paint it. You can't take a picture of it. It doesn't exist. But what does exist is the kind words you just gave to me in front of my daughter. What you just said about me is everything to me. Well, it's true. And, and thank you back for that acknowledgement. And gotcha. you mentioned friendship and you kind of segued right into what I wanted to ask you about next is these long standing relationships that you have in your life. You, you spoke with us when we saw you a couple of weeks ago at the gala about meeting Jay Siegel 61 years ago and, and Tony Wine and talk to us about the importance of these friendships and how you guys met and came up together because it's not just them, you came up with like major heavy hitters in this business. How have you managed to keep those relationships going? Well, you know, that's a very interesting group of people. We all literally grew up in the same classroom. And where was this university? This university was the building called 1650 Broadway, not the Brill Building. The Brill Building was across the street 
from the Brill building, from the 1650 Broadway, next to the Winter Garden Theater. In that building, there was the sixth floor. On the sixth floor, there was kind of a university. The teachers and the professors of that university were named Don Kirshner and Al Nevins. Maybe you remember Don Kirshner's rock concert. But at 26 years old, he was the guru, the new, the founder, the visionary of the new record business. Who was in these classrooms? Well, in his office, there was a series of classrooms, little cubicle rooms, and each room had an artist or songwriter. Most of us were in our teens. And the people listed in that university were Carol King, she was 18 years old, and her husband, Jerry Goffin. Next door to that, to them, was Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde, who, by the way, are also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, who wrote songs like Somewhere Out There, You've Lost That Love and Feeling, Just Once, and on and on. They were part of that classroom. Tony Wine was also, I brought her into that school. She was only 14 years old when I met her. And I brought Tony Wine into that classroom and she remained as one of our students there. And then I ended up writing Groovy Kind of Love, Candida for Me, etc. Jay Siegel was with the Tolkens. He wasn't in that building. He was in his own, own uh, university across the street where the Ed Sullivan Theater was, where David Letterman came from all those years. And in that classroom, I would go visit once in a while we became friends and we were in our teens. Also in my university, next door to me was a guy named Neil Sadaka. Next to Neil Sadaka, there was a, a, a young performer who was already on his way named Bobby Darren. Next to Bobby Darren, there was a duet called uh, Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry never made it until they changed the names to Simon and Garfunkel. Then next to them, there was a girl named Connie Francis, who was the queen of song back then. Then our guru godfather, which was a 26-year-old guy named Don Kirshner. And what if I told you that all the names I just mentioned to you, we are still like this. We are still, we talk about those days like some, someone who may have gone to a high school together and they have a high school reunion. When we get together, it's always that high school reunion. So Jay Siegel, of course, who was one of the tokens, but he also co-produced Candida, written by Tony Wine. My first hit record was called Halfway to Paradise, written by Carol King and Jerry Goffin. My second record was Barry Mann, Cynthia Wilde, was called Bless You. They went on to like, a Broadway show is about them. Beautiful is about those four people, Carol King, Jerry Goffin, uh, Barry Mann, and Cynthia Wilde, those four friends who wrote more hit records than I could even mention on your, on your show. So how do we stay together? Memories. The memories that we have together is the glue because those were the memories when um, we were dreaming about being in this business and the dreams came true. So what we do is we always go back and say, do you remember do you remember how we used to dream about having a hit record? Do you remember we used to go to the Collie record shop and pray that we'd have a hit record someday of our own in that record shop? That's the glue that's kept those people you just mentioned together. 
That's amazing. How, Tony, one more question on that. How did you even get your foot in the door there? When did you really start as a performer? I started under a lamppost singing doo-wop with my group, The Five Gents. I was uh, 13, 14 years old. I then uh, decided to take my guitar, which I just learned four chords on, C, A minor, F, G7, which are the chords of all the doo-wop songs you ever sang. And I went to the top floor of that building, 1650 Broadway, of that building, and I worked my way down. I see a sign that said, record company, I knock on the door, go in and I'd sing and they turn me down. I go to the next floor, they would turn me down. I go to the next floor, they would turn me down. Now there was one door that didn't say record company. It said, Nevin's Curse the Music. Well, I wasn't a knock on that door because that wasn't a record company. So I leave and I go into a hallway at the Brill Building to sing with a group that I didn't know who they were at the time, they were the Belmonts of Dion and the Belmonts. And I'm in this hallway singing doo-wop with them when two guys walked up to me and they said, hey, my name is Brooks Arthur and uh, Artie Kaplan. We'd like to sign you. I said, really? Yeah. We're going to take you over to 1650 Broadway, the building I just left, and took me to the door I wouldn't knock on, right? I go into that door and I meet this guy, Don Kirshner, and I sing La Bamba for him with my guitar. And he says to me, I'm signing you. I walk out of the door and I never answered my phone because I said, he's not a record company, who is this guy? And my mother said to me, I think you want to talk to him. And get on the phone. I said, well, what have you done, Mr. Kirshner? He said, I have a record out called Dream Lover by Bobby Darren, number one. How about Connie Francis? Have I heard Connie Francis? How about Neil Sedaka in my diary? Ever hear of them? I went, oh my God, this guy knows this stuff. I said, <laughs> 16, I went, signed with him, and God then took hold of me. And whatever destiny and journey I've been on is really due to him. He's my manager. That is, um, I, I just need a minute to, to, Me to, too. Let, to let that one soak in. Um, and, and Tony, one of the things that, that I mentioned at the outset was your versatility. And one thing that really impressed me about your background, and you just shared some things that, that I didn't know, and, and I'm sure most of our viewers, if not all of our viewers, didn't know. And, and that is the fact that there was a period in the 60s when you worked your way up on the other side of the business, if you will, uh, as an executive with Clive Davis. And right. then in 1970, you mentioned a song a few minutes ago that Tony Wine wrote that kind of changed the trajectory a little bit for you. And, and, and I think it kind of brought you from one side of the glass back to the other, didn't it? Absolutely. Well, that was, you know, it's funny when the British invasion happened, so that would be, let's say, Beatles, 63. So the couple of hits I had with Carol and Jerry at 16 were in 61, 62. 63 comes and the music business has changed because of Rolling Stones, Beatles primarily, Dave Clark Five, et cetera, et cetera, all the British invasion. Those of us who are making records as American artists, we weren't getting airplay. 
Okay, so I got married to my first marriage at 19 years old. So now at 19 years old, I find myself out of work with a wife who has a child. Now I figure, well, what am I gonna do? I gotta find a, I gotta make a living. So for a while I was a Mr. Mom. She would go to work and I'd do the cooking, believe it or not, and burn the toast, okay? And do everything wrong about cooking, but I did my best. And my mother came to me and she said to me, look, it's time you go out and find a life. You can't be, be doing this. So I went to work for a publishing company called Robbins Music, which is a division of Paramount Pictures for $100 a week. While I was there, I had a pretty successful run. I was in charge of getting songs to performers. So uh, I got lucky with Tom Jones, Delilah. I got lucky with a couple of hit records there. Dionne Warwick had a hit with us. And uh, all of a sudden I got a phone call from Clive Davis. Now, I'm this young hotshot kid, didn't realize it, that the record business was talking about my abilities to get these records done. So he called me and he said, Tony, do you remember meeting me? I said, no, I don't, Clive. He said, I was the fifth lawyer at Columbia Records when your mother came and we signed you to Epic. I was the lawyer that had to sign you because you were underaged. I said, you gotta be kidding me. He said, no, this is why I say God's hand, okay? Without a doubt, that was, you know, divine intervention, okay? To meet this guy all these years, and he becomes the Clive Davis, mm -hmm. and he's calling me. He remembered me back when I was 16. He says, hey, you know, you're kicking butt over there. How would you like to come over to CBS and be general manager of my music publishing company, April Blackwood Music, CBS Music. So I take the job and what a job it was. What an amazing job was to sign new writers, new artists and hope that I could help them make their dream come true. One of the artists that I signed was Barry Manilow and Barry went on to become a megastar and worked with James Taylor's music. I represented James Taylor's music, Blood, Sweat and Tears music. So I had this incredible four-year run. I worked my way up to vice president of CBS when I was 23 years old. I never saw high school. I never went beyond the eighth grade. And here I am, a VP at Columbia Records. So 1970 comes along. And you met Jay Siegel that night at the uh, award show. And Jay Siegel's partner, Hank Medres, who was one of the tokens, comes to my office at 1650 Broadway, that same building now, but now I'm a VP in that building, right? <laughs> floor, right? He comes in, he says, I'm broke. Help me out. I really am. I'm in need of, I got to pay my rent, Tony. You help me out. I said, what do you need, Hank? Okay, so there's a record I just produced called Candida. He said, written by an old friend of your, Tony Wine. She wrote the music to it. I said, oh my God, I've known Tony since he's 14. He goes, this, if you could get this record sold, I need $3,000. I'll sell it for $3,000. I said, well, Hank, I'll tell you what I'll do. 
I can't buy the record because I'm a publisher. I'm not a record company. I'm a music publisher for CBS. But I will take you to a record company that I know might like this record. And I did. Well, the record company turned it down. They love the record. They love the production. They love the arrangement. They weren't happy with the lead voice. So they said, Tony, tell Hank that if he wants his $3,000 to get a lead voice that we'll love. So Hank looks at me and he goes, do you want a lead voice? Yeah. How about you? So me? I can't cut that record. Are you crazy? I work for Clive Davis. That's moonlighting. I can't do that. He goes, Tony, I'm broke. Please help me. I'm really in trouble. Well, he touched my heart. I said, tell you what, why are you asking me anyway? He said, because I know that you used to do the demos for Carol King on the Drifters stuff. And this is very much a Drifters, Carol King type song. Would you do it? I said, the one condition. I give you an hour. If it comes off, it comes off, Hank. But don't call it Tony Orlando, because I'll lose my job. Call it Joe Schmo and the Nail Biters. Call it anything you want. Just don't mention my name. Deal. I go to the studio, and this is how we cut Candida, which sold, by the way, two million records, but to number one. Hank, how's the first line go again? Stars won't come out if they know that you're about. Hang on, hang on. Sing it again. Stars won't come out if they know that. Okay, okay. I got it. I got it. Play the track. They play the track. My turn. Stars won't come out if they know that you're about. What's the next line, Hank? Because they couldn't match the glow of your eyes. Because they couldn't. Okay, play my first line and I'll catch up to it. That's how we recorded that record. One line at a time. job as a friend for the tokens, right? Jay Siegel was one of the producers of that record, along with Hank Bendis. So next thing I know, three months go by and my secretary walks in and she says, her name is Cheryl Feuerstein. And she walks in and she goes, you know that, that song Candida? I said, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm thinking of all my publishing songs, right? She goes, no, 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 it's not, we don't publish it. It's the one you cut for Hank Medris and, and Jay Siegel and Tony Wine. 
It's a smash. I went, no. Yeah, it's a big hit. Look, it came on the charts of 30 with a bullet. Are you kidding? No song comes on that high. Next thing I know, it's number one. I'm driving, I'm hearing it on the radio, Cousin Brucey, all these people playing my songs. So they're playing the Candida. Here is Dawn, not Tony Orlando and Dawn, just Dawn with Candida. And I'm driving, I'm going, I'm not going to tell anybody. If I tell anybody, I'll lose my job. Okay? Next thing I know, I have no contract. I have no nothing. Hank comes in. He goes, Tony, would you do the follow-up? I said, Hank, please. Please. I don't want any money. I don't want anything. He said, please, Tony. Please. I need that same sound. And I promise you, after this, I won't ask you again. What's the song? It's called Knock Three Times. <laughs> I, said, Listen. I said, that is the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. First of all, first of all, they don't have pipes to knock on in Minnesota. They only have pipes to be exposed to knock on in Brooklyn. Now you're going to have a hit in Brooklyn. That's what's going to end, Hank. But little did I know that when I went in to cut that for him, it would sell four million records. So now between Knock Three Times and Candida, Rosie, I have four, six million records sold. So I go to Clive Davis and I walk into his office and I go, Clive, I'm going to have to leave the company. He goes, why? Because you're Dawn? <gasps> he knew. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. You, you knew that I'm Dawn and you never said anything? He said, Tony, it's the worst kept secret in show business. Everybody <laughs> knows it's you. I said, you're kidding me. He goes, no. He said, I'll tell you what. I'll never forget this, you guys. He said, you follow your dream. And if it doesn't happen for you, you can always come home. Wow. That's what Clive Davis was made of. And on my radio show on WABC just recently, I had Clive on twice, four hours of Clive Davis talking about his work with artists and the amazing artists that he discovered and made stars, including yours truly, that he really did give me my beginnings with, there's always somebody, Don Kirster, I told you about, that was the beginning. Clive Davis gave me the job. Hank Medris, Jay Siegel produced the record and on and on and on. And here I am with you. <laughs> Well, there was definitely a lot of divine intervention in there. There really yep. was. And when he wow. came back with that second song, I wasn't believing in divine intervention at that point because I didn't think that was a hit record. I really didn't. And sure enough, it became the biggest. You know that Not Three Times is the biggest hit record Tony Orlando and Dawn ever had. Now, remember, we had 27 chart records. Five number one records, three platinum albums, and a network television show. It's, it was quite a run. And we're the first uh, multiracial group to ever have a primetime television show. That's very, I'm very proud of that, you know, that we, we came on during all the family days and broke that barrier. And so it's been an amazing dream come true. And you're right. Without the hand of God, sorry, this doesn't happen. Not to an eighth grader who never saw high school and ended up as a vice president of CBS and then finds himself 
the network television show, 35 million people watching it every week. That's, that's a miracle. It, it is amazing. It really is. And Tony, one thing that just kind of jumped out at me is, is you're going back and sharing these stories with us. And it's the fact that you've done what you've done for as long as you've done it and as well as you've done it. And one of the things we just talked about divine in intervention, but where is it that you think you draw the energy and the strength from to keep doing what you've been doing for as long as you have and for as well as you have? I don't know. That's an honest answer. I don't know. I guess it's just the love of the industry, love of show business, record business, music. You know what I think it might be? As I told you, I never really cared about fame. I, I only cared about doing the job, singing the song, doing the show, whatever, doing the TV show. It was never like, wow, you know, we're going to have a TV show. We're going to have 35 million people watch us every single Wednesday night, which is not exactly the amount of people that watch that show every Wednesday night. Because, of course, there was only three networks back then. You had a hold of America back then, you know. And, no, I never, I only look, fame and success is only retrospective with me. Like, I look back and I go, I did that? Wait a minute, those gold records are mine? Hold on, I did this movie with Adam Sandler? What? What? We were the first one? How long were we on CBS? Four years? We did? It's always looking back on that, I go, wow. But while I'm doing it, I'm just doing it, you know? Well, that's a great testament to allowing the creativity that really, I mean, I believe comes from God. I don't know what your beliefs are, but but to to flow through you. And when you're doing what you're meant to do and you're following your inspiration, I think it's energizing. It does, it enables you to do it with, you know, that life force is in inside of you. And you mentioned dreams and, and your eighth grade education. And one thing that stuck out to me when I watched your acceptance speech for your Lifetime Achievement Award was when you said you like to dream big. And we're going to show the clip now. As kids, we dreamed about this. I used to walk around a rooftop in New York City dreaming that I was in show business. I would create my own marquees. You know how they would read? Check this out. Tell me if I wasn't dreaming. Tonight, we proudly present that in huge letters it would say, Tony Orlando. Then it would go on. Also appearing, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> was I dreaming or was I dreaming? Tony, I absolutely love that clip for so many reasons. First of all, you had a lot of chutzpah as a young man because Frank Sinatra was the, you know, the king of of everything at that time, how important it is, do you think, not only for yourself, but for kids today, to dream big, to nurture imagination? Well, it all begins with a dream. There's no, there's no other word to describe what it, what it is. When it, I remember the first time I had the dream. I went to see a movie called Singing in the Rain, it was, I think, maybe nine or 10 years old, Gene Kelly. 
And I remember seeing this guy twirling around a lamppost, soaking wet, splashing the ground and being the happiest person you ever saw. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to sing in the rain. I want to, I want to, I, I, I want to make people feel like he just made me feel. At that moment in time, when I saw Sing in the Rain, I didn't have a problem. I didn't have a pain. I just felt joy, his joy. The way he took his love affair in the rain and threw away the umbrella. Don't need an umbrella. I'm not, I have no fear of getting wet. I have no fear of looking soaked. All I know is I'm joyful and happy. And therefore that translated to joyfulness and happy in me. So the dream was ignited by a real moment. That real moment was that movie. And I think if you go back to any performer you interview, there is that moment in time when there's that real thing that happens, like I saw Gene Kelly, it's translated into a dream. Once it becomes a dream, it becomes something that it is now inside of you. When that dream happens and gets nourished, and it's inside of you, you then realize in retrospect that yes, it started with something in reality, but it can only be followed through once it becomes your dream. And that happens to every entertainer that I've ever interviewed, been friends with, it's that simple. It really is a dream. And we're coming into a time that kind of worries me a little bit. I find dreams are not talked about much anymore. They're talked about in, it's hokey. Dreams are hokey or dreams are, dreams are uh, uh, cheesy. Uh, I, I find that people today find dreams corny. But if you eliminate the word dream, you will eliminate the word goal because the dream is your goal. The dream starts up here yeah. and in here, then it becomes your goal. So if it wasn't for my dream, my rooftop dreams, standing up on a rooftop singing doo-wop with my, my group back when I was 14 years old, hoping I would be on the Bruce Morrow show or the Murray the K show, at 14, 15 years old. None of this would happen. We wouldn't be having this conversation. It's as simple as a dream, really. And by the way, the dream never goes away. You know, Tony, that's, that is such a powerful point. And I think an, another piece to that is that you, in addition to having the dream and, and then the goal and then working the plan to get to the goal, to fulfill the dream and all those things that I, I believe in just as you do, it's also, I think, having the courage and the commitment to go after it. And, but you just said something that really struck me as far as it never dies. Because, you know, as someone who had a dream, took a detour, came back, it never died. So I think whether you're pursuing it or if it's still there in the back of your mind or in your head when you hit the pillow at night, you're right. It never dies. And I think that message you just shared, I hope everybody takes in rewinds and watches again. Like that young man on the Philadelphia Phillies. Yeah. It was a baseball dream. 
he went to hell for nine years to finally walk up to that mound with his parents in that stadium, with those, with that Philadelphia crowd that's gonna say either you're gonna make it or you're not, we're gonna let you know. And he goes out there and what did the Philadelphia crowd do? They stood up because they realized one thing, this, this one simplistic fact that that young pitcher, Appel, faced his dream and won. You talked about the dreams, but we all know that life for the baseball reference throws us curveballs sometimes, and, and sometimes uh, they're hard to hit. So big deal. If you can't face a curveball, you're not dreaming enough. That's great. Do you think, Tony, that the, the parts of the journey that were tough for you um, were the thing, the very things that helped you to become the man that you are today and growing and overcoming? Probably. I think more importantly, my upbringing had a bigger part in that. I think my upbringing, to make a baseball reference, my mom and dad were some pretty good first base and third base coaches. Mm -hmm. And my family taught me uh, how to handle that. I'll give you an example, how I know that to be true. So my mother uh, remarries to a guy she's married to for 40 years, has a baby girl, Rhonda Marie Schroeder, my sister. My sister was born with, uh, I wanna say an IQ, because she was brain injured at birth of about an eight-month-old baby until she died at 21. So my mother and myself had to take care of her. I had to feed her strained baby food until she was in her teens. I changed her diapers, and I scratched her itch. And so those are the things that prepare you for the curveball. I went through the minor leagues minor leagues, was sitting in a rocking chair from 10 o'clock at night till six in the morning because my sister would convulse if I didn't. If I got up, she would have a convulsion. So I slept with her in that chair. Wow. And my sister would moan and groan and I knew it was that itch, moan and groan that was just annoying her. I'd have to do everything in my power to find that itch. When I would scratch it, I would hear a sigh. <sighs> and I learned from that moment that scratching your own itch is damn important. <laughs> Being able to scratch your own itch is important. So all those aspects of growing up is what defends you when you get the curveball. Because the curveball that she got was a lot more devastating than any curveball that was ever thrown at me. Beautiful story and kudos to you for, for doing that and, and also for sharing that. And there's, there's one other thing that I, I wanted to make sure I mentioned because I feel I'd be remiss if I didn't. And that's the fact that over the years, you've been a huge friend and supporter of our military. And one thing that I saw on your Facebook page that blew me away, and it's within the last day or so, 
you were presented with a flag and I believe it was signed by 200 veterans, I, I believe. And I looked at the pictures and the story that you wrote about it. And I just want to thank you for all you've done, because the way I see it, without those guys doing what they do, we don't get to do what we do. And I just think it's great that not just, not just this week, but for years and years and years, you've taken your time, shared your gift and brought hope and joy to the men and women defending this country. And I just want to thank you for it. And for folks that haven't seen that on your Facebook page, I highly recommend you check out beautiful pictures, beautiful story, Tony. Well, you know, I got that because I was in Iraq with those soldiers. I spent in 2008. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Back to, Rosie, you know, back to uh, divine intervention. Um, so I record this song called Tie a Yellow Ribbon on the Old Oak Tree. Uh, who, who knew, other than becoming a hit record, who knew? that it would be the thing that welcomed home our POWs from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. The first time I ever performed it was to welcome them home with the, at the Cotton Bowl with Bob Hope, 1973. First time I ever sang it was to them. I reunion with those guys ever since. We're coming up on 50 years. They changed my whole perspective about the military because those guys were literally tortured to the bone, and I mean to the bone. And half of them re-enlisted. Re Just think of that. And so I had met the bravest men I'd ever met in my life up until then. And then 19, that was 1973, and then the Iranian hostage crisis came. And that, uh, Penny Langdon, who was the wife of Bruce Langdon, who was the uh, ambassador to, our, to Iran for us, she tied a yellow ribbon on her mailbox and on her oak tree because of the song until her husband was going to come home. 444 days it stood there. 444 days when they came home, they came home to a yellow ribbon parade on Pennsylvania Avenue all the way to the White House. And then Desert Storm comes, and Desert Storm inherits the Yellow Ribbon as a symbol of hope and homecoming for men who fought in that war. So I have been part of all those moments, just think. So to raise money for veterans was the goal. The dream was the hit. The goal in reality was to do something with that dream. And the dream was then to create an environment of homecoming, awareness, and actual dollars on behalf of veterans' needs. So that little song brought me to part of my life that I could never, you have no idea what my association with the military has been since 1973. We're coming up in 50 years. So this coming 73, this coming uh, 2023, I will be hosting the homecoming of those POWs at the Nixon Library in California in 2023 after 50 years. 
When you go into Iraq and then you go into a hospital and you meet the wounded and you meet these young men and women, you know, this is the first military since the Civil War that wasn't drafted. They volunteered. This army that we have right now is all volunteers. So they sign their name on a piece of paper that says, I am willing to die for you, Rosie. I'm willing to die right now. I put my name on here. I'm willing to die for anybody who is a brother and sister in this country. Immediate heroes. When men and women sign that dotted line, they're already heroes in my book. So here I am, or F, narrow auditory canal, turned on by the by the doctors in, in the Vietnam War that I had to call about divine intervention. God had me pick up another rifle. It was called tie yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. When I walked out of that 4F meeting, I thought, how embarrassing, how ashamed I am that I can't serve my country like my uncles and my father and my grandfather who served in World War I. Wow, how embarrassed I was. No, that's why I say, That hand comes on you. You think you're going to the right. You're going to the left. You think you're going to the left. You're going to the right. It's on him. Boom. Once you see that door open, you run with it. He opens it. You know that old thing? Knock and you shall receive. You knock, you open it, and you run. And I've been running on behalf of veterans since 1973. 50 years of my career. It's the greatest thing I've ever done. It's the greatest joy I've ever received. It's the greatest part of my success is to be able to give to them who were willing to sign on that line. That's beautiful, Tony. And it's, it really is incredible how the, you know, you, you can see the bigger picture in you not getting in to the, to the service that you were meant to serve in a different way and have a huge impact and help all give hope to all of these people and give them the recognition and gratitude that they deserve and appreciation. And you know, Rosie, this week, as a matter of fact, tomorrow night, a buddy of mine, his name is Lee Greenwood, hmm. wrote a song called God Bless the USA, Right, is giving me the Lee Greenwood Patriot Award tomorrow night from a person who also was for F. Think of that. Lee Greenwood writes a song called God Bless the USA and has done, I don't even know how much he's done for the military. It's, you can't measure it. Him, Gary Sinise, and myself, the three, the three amigos we call ourselves. You know, but, but uh, Gary with a motion picture and the two of us, Lee and I, with hit records. What we've been able to turn that into Really, tomorrow night's a great honor from such a great patriot as the Lee Greenwood to receive that award from him. Well, congratulations, Tony. That's that's amazing. And I want to say one more thing about that because Taya Yellow Ribbon has had not only a great impact on the military and all of our veterans, but even everyday people have a connection to that song. It's touched them. I'm going to share with you briefly a personal story. Last year, my mother, she had been battling cancer and she had to go into the hospital and she was in there for a while. And when we took her home, 
We tied a yellow ribbon around the tree near the driveway. And I played that song for her and you singing as we drove down the street. Because it, it's such um, an example of love and loyalty and, and gratitude for, for people. And um, so I want to thank you. Well, thank you. It's thank you for sharing that story us. with me. Bringing me to tears, to be quite frankly. You know, it's amazing what music can do. A song, what it can do. The healing it can be. How medicinal it can be. A song. A song. And Larry Brown and Earl Levine, who wrote that song, I didn't write it. They, they, they never knew that this was going to happen to you. Right, exactly. To my veteran friends. Or right now, give me an example. Right now, Hong Kong is being threatened by China, right? So what are they doing? They want to be America. Hong Kong wants to be free. So what are they doing? They're playing Taiyo Ribbon, that record, at every single rally in Hong Kong. Wow. Okay, so from your mother to the POWs, to the people in a foreign nation like that, one little song, how that song has a string of miracles, really miracles attached to it. Can you imagine being in my shoes, Rosie? No. You, hearing that story, what you just told me, how close, what an impact that, that it had something to do with your mother's cancer, her life and death situation from her daughter. You're telling me this? God bless you. Well, we feel the same way. God bless you and allowing yourself to be an instrument of, of this for all of us. And, and the writers, everyone. Like you said, music. Music is healing. It's universal. Ah, so, so yes. Yeah, that, that's pretty amazing. And uh, I'm sure it's hard for you to even digest sometimes the impact of things that you've been involved with, which is a great, it's a great honor. It, is. it really is. And congratulations again on receiving that award from Lee, because like you said, Lee, yourself, Gary Sinise, I can't think of three finer patriots, musicians, actors, and thank, you know, just thanks for being a part of that and for, for all that you've done. And that's why I wanted to, to make sure the folks that, you know, that haven't seen your Facebook page yet or don't know the story, they need to, to learn the story and learn. And thank you for sharing every, everything that you just did back to 73. And that's going to be one amazing event that 50th anniversary next year as well. Wow. Yeah, congratulations on that, Tony. I have to ask you this next question. Otherwise, my brother will kill me. <laughs> he said, you got to ask Tony. Um, we went recently to see the Elvis movie. And he said, Tony knew Elvis. They were good friends when they were in Vegas. You got to ask him, you know, what was that time like being in Vegas and performing and this and that? And, and what was it like to be, you know, in a friendship with him? So I'm asking you. <laughs> well, uh, I just got off the phone with Priscilla Presley. Just not long ago, a few hours ago. And I said, I haven't seen the movie, but everybody's telling me the impact they had from this performance by this young actor who plays Elvis and by this movie. And Priscilla said, Tony, this young man 
is Elvis. This is Priscilla. She said, this is an actor beyond words. I hope that he gets an Academy Award for this performance. He should win the Academy Award. I, that's the first thing I said. This is coming from Priscilla, who was married to him, Maggie. And she said, I went to this movie screening with Jerry Schilling, a friend of Elvis's and her, through the years. And they just couldn't get over how great a film this was. You know, there've been a lot of movies about Elvis, but there's never been a movie that hit people like this one. Everyone's going to see this movie, everybody. And everybody's walking out going, you gotta see this. You really gotta see this. Now we've all grown up with the Elvis stories. And just an answer to your brother, yes, I spent many times with Elvis. Yes, uh, in fact, we worked the same hotel. He worked the uh, Las Vegas Hilton. I worked the Las Vegas Hilton. So when he would close it, and I would come in the next day, I'd make sure I come back to his dressing room the night before I open, give a hug and back to me. And we became very good friends, Elvis and I. And so what was he like? He was a gentleman. Um, he was, never left his roots. He was that Tupelo Mississippi boy who, by the way, couldn't get over his dream coming true. Mm. Always talked about that. And so he was a real, I'll tell you what happened uh, with Elvis. So after Fred, my friend Freddie Prince passed away, I had a little bit of a breakdown because I had never seen anybody die before and he died in my arms. And I, and I had never seen anybody pass away. And he was only 22 years old. I was 32 years old. And it took me out. I, I broke down. And so I find myself coming home from the hospital, being treated for my breakdown. And who gives me his apartment to recuperate in? Frank Sinatra. And where was this apartment? It was at the Waldorf Astoria Apartment Towers. 33rd floor. And one night I'm watching TV. Imagine I'm in Frank Sinatra's apartment now. And I see this story about Elvis. And I said to his uh, PR guy, who was also mine, Frank Lieberman, I said, you have Elvis's number? He said, yeah. I said, I got to call him. He's in trouble. He said, seriously? I said, I'm telling you, I, he's in trouble. I recognize some of the sad effects that he's having. Please get him on the phone. So we start calling at 10 o'clock at night on August 15th. Mm. The next morning, I couldn't get a hold of him. I was so concerned, I went and walked to St. Patrick's Cathedral, which was one block from that apartment of Frank's. I lit three candles, one for Priscilla, one for Lisa, and one for Elvis, and I prayed that he'd be okay. I come back, I open the door, and my then wife says to me, you better sit down. They found Elvis dead today. I had this premonition, this feeling that it was gonna happen. And sure enough, it happens. Mm. So Elvis's story in this movie that's coming out, I understand is pretty powerful and somewhat 
tough to take in some cases, is what I hear. But Priscilla Presley said to me, it's the most accurate, the most intense truth. And she's part producer in that movie, by the way, that has ever been made on Elvis Presley. And the great thing about it is, here's what she said, Elvis is back. Wow. She saw this as bringing the spirit of Elvis back mm -hmm. to a place that she wanted it to be. Right. right. So tell your, your brother, yes, he was a good friend. Yes, he was a funny gentleman, always had a funny joke and very normal, very normal, who lived a very abnormal life. I thought Elvis, I used to say to him, Elvis, you can't be stuck in a room like this. You're, you're in a gold room with, with, with diamond bars. You're in a jail. You got to get out and meet people. He didn't have that. He, you know, he rent movie theaters to see movies. He rent out restaurants to go to a restaurant. He couldn't go anywhere. Right. Which is sad. It's sad. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. Yeah. But he always was a kind, Tupelo, Mississippi gentleman. Well, thank you for sharing that, Tony. And go see the movie because I'll tell you, the work ethic that the, the work that this kid this actor, I shouldn't call him a kid, had to do to do what he did is astounding. And he deserves an Oscar for this performance. And I'm hearing it from you. And I've also tell your brother, I heard it just now from Priscilla before we did this interview. Yeah. I don't think there could be a more credible critic of a movie than Priscilla in this particular case, right? I mean, wow. Yeah. She told me this kid is like just Rosie just said, she said this kid, and he is a kid compared to me anyway, <laughs> just off the charts, unbelievable. And really did Elvis the right way. He showed Elvis on all sides of him, finally. Tony, I, I have one last question that, that I wanted to ask you, and that is, through everything you've done, and, and thank you so much for sharing all of these amazing stories and everything. It's been such an honor to, to, to have you thank on you with us and talk about all these things. And I'm just curious, is there anything that, from a career standpoint, as a performer, as an artist, is there anything that you haven't done yet that, that maybe is on your to-do list to do? Retire. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to spend more time with your family tony yeah you know i look forward to retirement i mean 62 years is quite a run and i mean i'm not making an announcement right now that i'm retiring because i'm i'm a young 78 but i look forward to that where i can just say you know what jenny franny let's take a trip to i don't know let's go where you your mother's grandmother came from in Italy. Let's go to Greece and let's let's just have a good time on the boat. You know, let's enjoy Branson's Table Rock Lake. Beautiful place to live. Let's have fun. You know, uh, as great a dream as it is, it's hard work. And to stay in it for 62 years, you gotta keep working. So I'm ready, 
hopefully, if I look forward to something, have I done movies? I've done movies. Did I do Broadway? I played Barnum on Broadway. 20 years later, Smokey Joe's Cafe. Okay, uh, have I had hit records? I've had hit records. Have I had my own television show? I've had my own television show. Have I been executive to a major corporation for four years? I've done that. Have you ever had a radio show? Yes, I have a radio show on WABC in New York City. By the way, a big hit radio show in New York City that I'm enjoying. When is that on, Tony, so our fans? Saturday nights, right? It's every Saturday night from 10 to midnight, but we stream around the world. I get mail from everywhere around the world on this show. We're number two in our time slot, number seven on all platforms in New York City. That's FM, AM, internet, you name it. It's And I kind of do a docu, a radio documentary show. I, I don't like to do just the flip records as much as, and I respect flipping records, but I have to make it a story. You know? hmm. So that's what I do with Clive, that's what I do with Lionel, that's what I did Adam Sandler, that's what I did Garth Brooks and Trisha. And they're sort of like little mini two hour documentaries about people. And so now I'm on, on the radio. And so when you say, what am I looking forward to? I've done it all. Hmm. I worked for nine presidents. My palate has tasted the foods of 30 countries. I've worked for, you know, for just about, from the Queen of England to the President of the United States. The most wonderful thing to look forward to is to have fun with my daughter, Jenny, my son, John, and my wife, Franny. That's beautiful. And I'm sure you will. We wish you, we wish you that and more. And Tony, Bill already said it, but I'm going to reiterate it. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure to, to meet you and to have that meeting exceed expectations because of who you are. And, and we are so grateful that you took time out of your very busy life to come and chat with us. And, and, and we thank you so much and we wish you all the best. You know, the greatest thing about you, Bill, is that you do something I haven't even learned to do yet. You're the best listeners I've ever, ever spoken to. You sat and you listened to me. And as an interviewer, that's the most difficult thing to learn. I haven't learned that yet. But you do it in a quality way, both of you. Thank you for your patience with me. And thank you for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. God bless you. Thank you, Tony. And my grandmother would be so proud of what you just said. She always told me I had two ears and one mouth. So I said, listen twice as much as I talk. <laughs> she was right. She was right. That's the hardest thing to learn when you're doing an interview, and you've done it. This is one of the best ones I've ever done. Good luck with your podcast. I hope everybody watches you. I know they will because I just sense what you're about. Oh, thank you, Tony. Thank you so much, folks. Tony Orlando, we will see you next week. All of us performers, this is something very special. This, to watch Jay come out and introduce me because, because I met Jay in Detroit and I remember clearly 1961, he was doing a week away, a week away, a week away, next door to my hotel room. It went on and on.
So what do you say when you're in a Lifetime Achievement Award? You make the people in the audience realize that you are going to have to go through my lifetime now. You want to know why? Because this award is not about what we do. This award, and any award we get, is what you do. You see, we're nothing without you guys. Nothing. The primary award is your support, your love, your consistency. That's the true award.